This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Epping Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. We are taking a quick break from the um, ethical startups or how do you be like a small and growing ethical company conversation to kind of take a step back and do something in practice that we talk a lot about, which is you know, identifying what our values are, what are the things that we care about, and and how do those things influence our work, um, influence activism, and in this case, um, are really driving from like you know who we are. And uh, Song and I wanted to talk about talk about what does it mean to be in the AAPI Asian American Pacific Islander community, which we can talk about how that's actually a political term, which is really interesting from an activism perspective. And what does it mean for Song to be an Asian American woman? And how does that affect the things she does, like this podcast, how she feels about things, what her values are, and and how does that connect to the conversation that we really need to have today or the broader kind of um, communal conversation around increases in hate crimes against the AAPI community. So Song, thank you for wanting to talk about this and kind of using this opportunity to show what it means to to care about things and to put that into practice. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show, I guess. Um, Yeah, thanks for hosting me and uh, letting me share my experiences. Um, so what does it mean to be an Asian American woman? Uh, I guess this means something different for everyone, but, uh, for me, I mean, I identify as an Asian American, as a Korean American. I am an immigrant and a daughter of immigrants. Uh, I'm also a cisgender heterosexual woman. And I know that in my identity, I have some, you know, things where I am quite privileged um, and some where I am disadvantaged. And so I think that I look at my identity at the intersection of um, all the different kinds of things that impact who I am. Uh, So just, I guess, by way of context, I came to the States when I was six years old. Um, My parents were in their early 30s. They were young parents. And we lived in a small college town in central Florida. Uh, We were part of a very small but tight-knit Korean-American community. um, And that was very much like the village that raised me and uh, my sister, who was just uh, seven months at the time. Um, I can't imagine how my parents did it, but... Yeah. And, you know, those ties to our community, um, I think, were really... The way that we survived uh, and that I think colored a lot of the experiences that I've had growing up and in in shaping my values and all of that. Um, In terms of, you know, my career choices, I always grew up um, hearing my dad talk about how, you know, he used to like protest, you know, in college and things like that against the oppressive authoritarian regimes that had taken up power um, after the Korean War, supported by U.S. And so I've always had this, I think, kind of like fire for activism and, you know, fight for democracy and all of that in me. 
it's important to me that I was the daughter of immigrants and that I remember kind of that transition between being in Korea and coming over to the States um, and really remembering and uh, honoring the sacrifices that they made for us to be here. Um, in terms of my career, uh, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I was mostly kind of bred with the idea, um, I think, as with a lot of Asian um, American or Korean American, at least, parents, just this idea of like being in a stable job, uh, not stressing about money, right? Those things were um, important to me. And so when I went off to college, I actually started off as a biology major because, uh, you know, being a doctor or a dentist um, was one of the few kind of <laughs> career choices that were offered up as options to us, I think, in, in my community. Uh, but then luckily in, in college, I took a, a random sociology course as, you know, to meet my general education requirements. And I was just fascinated and, you know, one of my professors, he studied uh, cities, American cities. He took me under his wing. And I think it was, you know, probably because, you know, not because I like stood out in any other way, other than the fact that I was the only Asian American in my major, uh, probably one of the few that he's, he's had. Um, so he sort of took me under his wing. And I was at USC, University of Southern California. Uh, which has one of the wealthiest endowments in the country uh, and is also set in one of the poorest zip codes in the country. And so you can kind of imagine the very severe town and gown type of, uh, of dynamics that were there. And Professor Leland Sato, he took me under his wing and he kind of helped me open my eyes to the world of fighting for economic justice and, and, and about solidarity building and all of that. And so I became introduced to this group called the Figura Coalition for Economic Justice. And I got to be like a student organizer um, in the, the neighborhood surrounding USC to make sure that in this kind of rapid expansion of the university, that the, the folks who actually lived in the neighborhood were being displaced or that they knew of their rights um, so that they could defend themselves and protect against, against the expansion of the university. And also during college, I guess it was, you know, it was a very formative time for me. I interned at uh, an Asian American civil rights organization in Los Angeles. It was called APOC back then. Um, it's now uh, AAJCLA. And I manned the Korean language hotlines, the Korean language legal hotlines. And during this time, you know, I got a, t a ton of different types of calls. You know, some of the common buckets were around immigration fraud, folks who had gotten their wages stolen by their employers, folks who were afraid to report fraud. Um, but I remember the ones that really kind of shook me um, were women who were in abusive domestic violence relationships, and they felt they couldn't leave because their partners were hanging immigration status over their heads and usually call in, in these like very small windows that they had while their partners were out. And 
I uh, really became uh, passionate about about the, the kind of issues facing the Asian American community and immigrant women in, in particular. And I, after working in Korea for a few years um, under uh, Hetan Lee, who was a politician out there, during my sort of soul searching out in Korea, I realized that going to law school would help me to bring some power back into my community. And so that's why I decided to go to law school and eventually, you know, started off my career at an Asian American civil rights organization called the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund in New York City. So you just talked about some really clear challenges that women in the Asian American community were facing. And I know because I like know what you did, that some of the work you did really was addressing that. And so I would love for you to just talk in a little bit more detail, not just about the work you did, but sort of the need around immigration, human trafficking, um, you know, especially in the US, like what are situations, like how is it that people will end up in the US without permanent residency status or kind of like without the right visas? Like what were the sort of challenges you saw that you were kind of introduced to in college and how did that connect to the work you ended up doing as a lawyer? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for posing that question. Um, this, I feel like my work in the past, uh, it, it kind of ties in neatly with a lot of um, what's been happening and, and the things that I really care deeply about. Uh, so when I worked at All Deaf, I ran the anti-trafficking initiative there. And when I say anti-trafficking and I say I worked at an Asian American civil rights organization, the response that I get usually, or the I think the assumptions that folks have is, oh, she must be talking about Asian Americans working in massage parlors. And I did represent massage parlor workers, but that was just a tiny sliver of what forced labor and human trafficking looks like in the Asian American community, for one. Um, and also, not all massage parlor workers are trafficked. And there is a range of freedom uh, to, to choice or the lack thereof that individuals in the sex industry generally have as a part of their stories. And so I wanted to make those uh, distinctions clear from the get-go. Um, talking about human trafficking, I like to talk about it as sitting on this spectrum of labor exploitation. So starting off with things like overtime violations or uh, wage theft uh, on the one side, and then on the other side, some of the most extreme forms of labor exploitation, which is forced labor and human trafficking. And I worked with survivors of trafficking in all kinds of industries. So um, anywhere from domestic workers for powerful diplomats and UN employees. We have talked in the past about how people who do good in the world, or there's the assumption that they're out to do good in the world, can be still terrible people. Um, and there are people, of course, on the other side who are doing work that we perhaps label as harmful, but can really be good people. And so we really do have to check our uh, preconceptions about, about all of that. 
anyhow, um, a little bit of sidebar, <laughs> but yeah, I represented survivors of trafficking also in the hospitality industry, so like theme parks, uh, hotels, and manufacturing plants, of course, massage parlors, but also, you know, even teachers and religious workers. And the point is that that human trafficking and forced labor, it can happen in really any industry where labor exploitation is possible. And I think it's sometimes easy to get caught up in preconceived notions about who are undocumented and the kind of stories that they carry. But you know, even kind of personally in, in college, my boyfriend, uh, he was, you know, Korean American who went to UCLA, you know, who's studying accounting. Um, he was undocumented, right? And so the, the struggles that he had with finding work that he wanted, uh, you know, his ability to pay off loans, his worries about the future and getting his uh, his driver's license renewed, right? Like all of these things were very kind of personal and real to me, but he became undocumented because his family was defrauded by unscrupulous immigration attorneys. Yeah, and there are so many different ways um, that people can be documented or become undocumented. And I think it says a lot more about how we've crafted immigration laws and less so less so anything about, about the individuals themselves. Again, kind of tracking back to my work, there was a study done by the Urban Institute, which found that of people who have been human trafficked, they, about 70% had immigration status, had valid immigration visas when they entered the country. And by the time they left their, their situation of trafficking, 70% left without a valid immigration status. So it just goes to show how people exploit our current immigration system to exploit low-wage workers. Uh, and again, there's no typical story of, of how that happens. But as an example, there are these really unscrupulous employment agencies that have figured out that the immigration system is sort of up for grabs and up for uh, taking advantage of, right? They, uh, they take advantage of desperate individuals in countries who need a source of income, but for um, different reasons are unable to find them in their home country. And so they promise these great jobs in the U.S. that are well-paying and stable and, you know, they can bring their families and provide for their families. And for that opportunity, right, for that American dream, they're charged uh, these exorbitant fees that they now have to pay off somehow. And after coming to the U.S., it turns out that either the jobs that they were promised are not what they signed up for, or sometimes the jobs don't even exist when they come to the States, it, they're, they're stuck in an even more desperate situation where they have this debt hanging over their heads, but perhaps no job, right? Or perhaps um, they're getting paid way less than they thought they would be. And so this debt has become uh, impossible to pay, right? There are so many different kind of like iterations of this, but in, in all of these situations, it makes folks who are desperate, even more desperate and kind of like primes them for exploitation. And it's in those situations where people get forced into doing the kind of labor that they uh, did not agree to. And stories like this abound. 
And I think it just kind of goes to show that it requires a broader examination of the needs of our community or, you know, of how we stop bad people from doing bad things. And that it it's not just through the criminal law, right? It's not like just bad people setting out to do bad things, but it's usually people taking advantage of systems that have loopholes um, that can be used for the good of people with power um, and that take advantage of, um, of folks with less power. And I think this is very stark, for example, with like the immigration system, which allows uh, employers to easily kind of bring in um, workers to meet labor needs. But there are on the, the other side, there's very few protections for the workers. And so I, I think it requires kind of an, an examination of the kinds of laws that need to be changed. It's not as simple. It's not as simple as just further criminalizing, right? Because we see policies that look neutral on their face. Um, and it's not, you know, sexy or, or really get attention, but um, have the very real impacts of exploiting already vulnerable people even further. I do think what you just said has such broader it's just like a really important thing to think about broadly whenever we're looking at kind of any type of policy, which is, do we really understand how every single person who might come in contact with a law or a policy will be positively or negatively impacted by it? And like you said, I think that, you know, you can imagine some specific positive benefits to a policy that allows companies to sort of bring workers to to the US but there's this like really obvious negative impact to the people who have visas in that form if they don't want to stay with that work or or whatnot so that is just sort of interesting to think about broadly um, that it's not just in immigration but in lots of policies right we have to think about things can look good and they can have really negative consequences some very foreseen and some unforeseen and and it sounds like what you're you know what you're talking about are clear it's not even just loopholes but like gaps in the system or or even known um fallacies in the system yeah i love the way that you put that the gaps and fallacies in the system i've talked briefly about immigration laws but even labor laws right there are exemptions from protection from federal labor laws for domestic workers, for example, who are in some of the most vulnerable positions because particularly for foreign domestic workers, they are they live with their employers and they're so they're there 24-7, right? They have no community, they have no family, they don't even speak the language. And so they are almost completely within the the power of their employers and the power dynamics that play out because of all of those reasons on top of cultural dynamics puts them in a really vulnerable position. And yet they're not protected under the federal labor, labor laws, right? And the you know, same thing goes for um, seasonal agricultural workers, for instance. And, you know, it's, it is complicated, right? It is complicated for, let's say, domestic workers, um, for diplomats, you know, because it also implicates these other things like diplomatic relationships, which are really, really important. 
And there are very real costs, unfortunately, when when talk when thinking about policies for individuals and communities that have been perpetually exploited. And I think it requires being bold and and kind of figuring out what our values are as Americans and how we can put some of those values ahead of other interests. And I think we've, this kind of mirrors a little bit of what we're talking about with um, with startups, but this this values based thinking around our policies, I think it requires a, a lot of courage. But but I, I do recognize that it's so hard and so complicated. Um, and it's just like a quick example. Back in 2013, there was this big case where an Indian diplomat, um, Kobergati, was arrested for the very first time for trafficking her domestic worker. And it actually led to a very tough kind of like diplomatic battle that had waves that impacted even, you know, my my work and representing my Indian clients kind of going forward after that too. So so it is very complicated and, and I do want to to recognize that. That's interesting that you say that because if I were to sort of like take a step back and make just like a quick judgment on like the American policy around working conditions, for example, it's like, I would say very exploitative unless we make a law that makes it not. And even still, we're always going to have very exploitative working conditions. Like, I think that's just true. Like looking at the history of America, right? Like at whatever point you come in, you can point to industry structures, whatever, where there's ongoing exploitation of the labor market. Yeah, not that long ago, we like child labor was very normal in the U.S. Like, I, I think that it's like important to remember that in some ways, the U.S. had some early and strong labor protections, um, which was good and, and important, but not 110 years ago. <laughs> and and we're still working on it, right? Like I think that what you're pointing out is that we've we've put in all these policies. If you compare the federally mandated working conditions like in factories to other countries, um like we're doing pretty well. But there's still gaps and this the situations that you, that you're talking about really are like impossible for the people that that end up in them. Yeah, you mentioned labor policies and the good baseline that the U.S. started off with. And there are quite good protections in place. But again, you know, certain industries that were excluded when you think about the people that were left behind again, so like low-wage agricultural work, low-wage domestic workers, you can see this pattern of certain people continuing to be in a perpetual cycle of exploitation because someone made the political decision that we can sacrifice a group of people in in a compromise. And those people who are sacrificed tend to be those that we don't pay attention to um, kind of as, as a society. As And so I think at a baseline, we need to start being more vigilant and to pay more attention to who are the individuals that we are perpetually excluding uh, from the protections that that we have as Americans. So connecting kind of what you said earlier about the people who were murdered in Atlanta really not that long ago, um, and they're kind of at this, they're at this intersection of 
some historical things and some very modern problems. So I guess my, my, my question for you is, it kind of feels like until 2020, people weren't talking about Asian Americans experiencing racism. I mean, to be honest, I don't think people were talking about racism a lot anyway. And so like, so I was like, to be fair, um, but, you know, we, we could talk about the model minority myth and expectations um, as a piece of it. But, and the other sort of observation that I have, and I'm sure you have this as well, is that there's, there's like a social conversation happening, but I'm not sure that everyone who needs to hear it is paying attention because of the silos we've put ourselves in. And so, you know, something happens and you might go on Twitter, Instagram, or even like a group chat and everyone's like, this happened. Oh my God. We're all sort of agreeing. And yet these things keep happening. Right. And, and so you might find yourselves or like, I've definitely found myself in kind of an echo chamber of everyone I know kind of agrees that this is a problem and yet it keeps happening. And so it's not that there's a question there, but just to sort of open up this next minutes in our conversation around, you know, not that you not that you have an answer, but like why weren't we talking about this before now? And are there things that we like really don't understand about the AAPI community experiencing racism in 2021? Yes. Uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans is not new. It's been happening since the very beginnings of the country, you know, whether it's like the lynching of Chinese Americans in California, of the workers who are here building the, the railroads, right, the intercontinental railroads. You know, we don't talk about that. You know, probably the first kind of hate crimes that we talk about is the murder of Vincent Chin in Michigan by white automakers. Um, but then there were also like the gang who called themselves the dot busters in, who are terrorizing the South Asian community in Jersey um, and like bludgeoned someone to death. Um, and of course, there was the increase in hate crimes against South Asian community after Trump's uh, rhetoric against the Muslim community. Yeah, uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans, absolutely not new. And in the same way that the moment was ripe for the movement for Black Lives to take root and that the momentum for long overdue national conversations about uh, anti-Black racism in the United States to happen, this was also a moment for us to ride on, on those conversations, right, that opened up by the protests um, spurred on by the killing of George Floyd in 2020. So something I think that's been challenging around um, stopping Asian hate is that some of the new voices, some of the new Asian American voices coming out to speak out like like celebrities, and I, I won't call out names right now, but you know they haven't been in the fight for all that long. And for those who haven't been thinking about social justice and justice for Asian Americans as part of the broader kind of movement for racial justice, and they haven't been a part of building solidarity, right, and all of that that needs to happen to actually stop violence against uh, people of color from happening, 
kind of miss talking about the fact that hate crimes keep happening because we haven't addressed the root causes of, of why they're all happening in the first place. Um, and kind of along those lines, there's also a split within the Asian American community. Um, some of it's generational, but it was, yeah, it was challenging for me when I was working on the ground. Um, there were always these kind of splits that happened between um, kind of more progressive and more conservative uh, Asian Americans along the issues of things like affirmative action or in the case of Peter Liang, who was convicted by a jury for manslaughter of um, of a Kai girly, um, and then a court later like reduced that to negligent homicide. So while some some Asian Americans were celebrating that for the accountability within the police department that finally happened, um, some came out demanding justice for Peter Liang and, and calling that accountability of him unfair, right? But the thing is, you know, it was such a, a stark split at the time, but, you know, the thing is both of those things can be held together. We can both, we can both cheer on the progress that there was finally accountability while also pointing out the, that racism that's implicit within uh, law enforcement departments and that Asian Americans were yet again scapegoated by institutions and that that is not just. That while none of the other police officers were held accountable for for their killings of black and brown men and women, the first kind of conviction that came was of an Asian American officer, right? But both of those things, they, they point to the fact that, you know, law enforcement as an institution has inherent racial biases in them. And, you know, I'm not talking about the the men and women who signed up because they want to serve and protect and who put their lives on the line to uphold their duty. Um, You know, that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about individuals per se. I'm I'm talking about the the criminal justice system as an institution and the impact of over-policing of communities and looking beyond intention to the impact, which is a state-sanctioned killings of Black and Brown women and men, and centuries of evidence that show that the police, again, as an institution, was built to be racist. Now, we can't look to those same racist institutions to address racism in our own communities. It just does not work that way. And this ties back to conversations around uh, reallocating um, resources from the police um, and rather supporting community-driven responses instead. So, you know, whether it's groups, uh, and again, talking specifically about Asian American hate crimes, you know, groups to protect Asian American elders in Chinatown, or uh, social support systems in our communities that address mental health and uh, economic inequalities as well. And how, yeah, increasing police presence is not the answer to stopping Asian hate. Not to mention the police killings of Asian Americans like Christian Hall and Angelo Quinto. And I talk a little bit more about this in the written piece that I'm, I'm working on, but you know, the, the outrage 
around the ball killings in Atlanta in March were really centered on that specific shooting and this in context of, of hate crimes against Asian Americans. However, you know, it's my experience having worked with clients in this industry that a really high percentage of them were also harassed by the police on the regular um, over the course of their work. You know, they were propositioned for sex in exchange for not arresting them. There was another study by the Urban Institute that showed that the average individual working in a massage parlor, they were arrested, you know, 23 times, right? And so the harassment of massage workers by the police was possibly one of the most common forms of violence uh, against them. So it wasn't kind of shooters with ulterior motives who came in and perpetrated killings that um, was the biggest source of threat that they faced on the daily, it was the police themselves. So again, looking to the to law enforcement for the protection of the very vulnerable populations um, that we're talking about really can't be the answer. And for my clients, right, it was their friends, it was the people in their networks, it was it was that kind of community that shared whatever information that they could. Um, it was that that kept them safe. And also, you know, kind of to the point about why wasn't this talked about really in the past? What is it that we don't understand? Like, why is this now just finally coming to light? I think a lot of it is, you know, it's tough because Asian Americans have been propped up as this kind of wedge minority and the the model minority stereotype that was created to essentially drive communities of color apart. It's this insidious stereotype has been wildly successful, essentially, and we all suffer because of it. It didn't just happen. There was uh, genius and really disgusting social engineering that happened around that. So the the model minority stereotype is that um, Asian Americans are doing well and that we are hardworking um, and they've made it. So why can't you? First of all, it's not true at all. The Asian American experience, and I've been using the term Asian American to encompass sort of the broad range of um, of Asian Americans from South Asians to Southeast Asians to East Asians, Pacific Islanders. So the Asian American experience is incredibly diverse. And while some communities are doing quite well with some of the highest incomes in the country, others have the highest rates of poverty in the country and the lowest rates of education and the highest rates of high school dropout rates of any group in the U.S., and that's because of the vast differences in histories that we're bringing. You know, uh, it also has to do with immigration laws that curated exactly the types of migrants that were allowed in at certain rates at certain times in history. Right. And the, the stereotype, it's not flattering. Right. It's not helpful to anyone. All it does is um, have the effect of of keeping us to be perpetual outsiders, right? And keeping us being looked at with contempt from, uh, you know, from, from the white folks as well as other communities of color. And 
it was perfectly concocted to pit communities against one another. And it's really interesting because so its roots go back to post-World War One when Japanese Americans were incarcerated. Um, and there was this study after the war to sort of with the intention of, of I think, um, helping Japanese Americans be reintegrated into American society. And so it kind of talked about all of these, quote unquote, good characteristics that Japanese Americans had that would, you know, make them be a bit, like a benefit to society or, or whatnot. However, that report was then used later on during the civil rights era to discredit civil rights leaders by saying, hey, look, Asian Americans are doing well. Look at all of these glowing characteristics that were written about. So the claims that you are making about racism and discrimination in our systems is false. So super insidious. And it has the effect, I think, of not just pitting communities against one another, but also of making the AAPI community a little bit more complacent as well. Um, and I will say the model minority stereotype is being discussed more and more, and people are becoming much more aware of its both its falsehood and its insidious nature. Uh, but over the years, I think it has been internalized in some ways by the Asian American community um, into making us believe that we can achieve whiteness, kind of believing that story that's been fed to us about the ability to achieve the American dream. And that's kind of led us en on enough to keep our heads down and to work hard without actually giving us power um, and, and from preventing us from bu building collective power. Again, there are certain groups within the category of Asian Americans who are, are doing quite poorly socioeconomically. And even for the groups of us that are overrepresented in certain kind of prestigious industries, uh, we're still grossly underrepresented at the highest level. So achieving whiteness, it is not a thing that can happen. So something you were just saying reminded me of something I, I saw on social media the other day that I just thought was really interesting. And it wasn't about like convincing anyone, but it was just a really interesting question. And it was like, you know, even if you personally, whatever your race, gender, et cetera, is, have not been profiled by the police or otherwise harmed, ask yourself the question, do you feel safe? Like, do you feel like the society you live in, the structures, et cetera, keep you safe? And as like a woman, like, no, like absolutely not. Like I don't think about it all the time, but like, I feel like I take my life in my hands if I go on a run, right? Like in like kind of like a more rural area um, or even not a rural area, right? And things like that. And then just even broader, I mean, there's a lot of evidence when you look into various groups within American society that people don't feel safe, right? They feel a need to be able to protect themselves, whatever that looks like. Um, and I just think that's really interesting to just sort of like pose the question of, you know, instead of looking at, like you said, an individual incident and just sort of question like is the system working for any of us right and there are these there's these very clear examples where they aren't but I also think that most people can kind of either personally or kind of like look at society and say we don't feel safe 
um, things that make me feel safe are living in communities that I know are going to protect me, right? Like living in tight-knit communities where everybody knows each other, where maybe where people are even gossiping <laughs> like a little too much about each other. Like I feel pretty safe living in really tight-knit communities like that because if something happens, like, you know, you're going to know about it. <laughs> like you, you can't just get away with things. You know, you can't get away with petty theft in, in a really tight-knit community, And yeah, I just thought that was really interesting to just sort of think about like, do you feel safe? Do you feel protected? And, you know, what you're talking about here, Asian women working in massage parlors specifically do not feel safe. They do not feel protected by the institutional structures around them. Right. And when we're talking about hate crimes, I do wonder um, hate crimes and, you know, feeling safe and protected. I do wonder what part of it is being reactionary to the moment and which parts of it are really about trying to keep, uh, keep folks safe. And so are we just responding to a very specific type of a violence that happened in a very visceral way? Or are we thinking about in a systemic way about how we can prevent harms from people who don't feel safe in the future? Um, and so if we're talking specifically about hate crimes against Asian Americans, right, like you see spikes in hate crimes against Asians, uh, immigrants, people of color in times of economic distress. And that is so much more telling than the fact that all of a sudden, right, people are, you know, getting more violent or whatnot, right? Like that's not as convincing. And yeah, so when we talk about hate crimes um, and people getting attacked and mass shootings, they are awful and brutal and they're devastating. They have to stop. However, There are also other forms of anti-Asian violence that are also incredibly devastating, like the ones perpetuated by the state. And they also need attention and need to be forced to stop. So the day before the Atlanta area shootings, um, there was a a much less media-saturated deportation of 33 Vietnamese refugees. And when we are talking about deportation, I know that it can feel really far away, but I think it might be helpful to kind of break down what that really means. First of all, these are individuals, and not just specifically in this instance, but over the past few years, many, many, many other Southeast Asian refugees from Cambodia and Laos who came to the U.S. after U.S.-led war in their countries, tore apart their homes, killed millions of people. These were folks who had seen their family members slaughtered and their homes burned down. And because of the lack of much-needed support for traumatized families to to set, resettle in a way that could like help them with their PTSD and set up to succeed in a new world where they didn't know the, the language, didn't have social supports, um, didn't have a way to access good jobs. The folks who have been recently deported, uh, a lot of them were probably quite young when they came to the United States. Um, and in their youth, um, they possibly joined gangs as a means of survival and maybe the only way for them to kind of find their place in the only kind of true social support 
that they had, again, because of the absolute lack of much needed support. And specifically these like the 33 Vietnamese refugees that were deported was also in violation of a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and Vietnamese governments. You know, the U.S. essentially promised that they wouldn't send back anybody who came from Vietnam to the United States before, um, I think it was July 1995. And these refugees, the reason they were deported, they were sent back because of crimes that they committed you know, 20, 30 years ago for which they've already served time. Um, but that made them eligible all of these years later, even as green card holders, eligible for deportation because of inhumane immigration law that was signed into law in the 90s by Bill Clinton. And I won't get into the whole kind of immigration policy and how it's shifted and, and whatnot over the years and how the deportation machine has continued to grow even under President Obama. Deportation of Southeast Asian refugees means that, again, individuals who came to the States as children fleeing war-torn countries who have demonstrated the most incredible resiliency in rebuilding their lives and their communities and establishing roots here, that they are getting ripped apart from their families and from their communities uh, and sent back to a land where they're likely to not know a single soul with no tools to rebuild their lives from scratch again. And, you know, it's hard to say this is even for punishment, right? They've already done their time decades ago. But it was just so Trump could beat his numbers for the the number of immigrants that he promised to deport. And even when it's not under Trump, it's because refugees tend to be sometimes of the lowest hanging fruit and and some form of kind of like political sacrifice. And to me, that's egregious violence, right? The sheer injustice of that makes me so angry. And it is egregious, it's violent, and it happens in our communities every day. Um, and that's the type of violence that we need to be more vocal about to prevent from happening. The one thing talking about a lot of this, or, or some talking about this might avoid, is like root cause, right? Like, how are we as a society othering people, not looking at our own sort of trauma or hurt? And like taking it out on different groups. Um, I was just looking, just because I was really interested, the FBI hate crime statistics and kind of comparing the numbers to updated numbers from activist groups that that kind of look at things more holistically, right? It's not just crime, but it's kind of all types of incidents. And just thinking about how, you know, it's because you are blank, right? Because you are from a certain place, because we assume you're from somewhere based on the color of your skin, because we assume something about you because of your faith, because we assume something about you because of your sexuality, whatever. It's just really interesting to sort of think about, one, how 2020 so interrupted for everybody this idea of like post-racial society, whatever that even meant. And it was never true, but just like so clearly shot, like you said, like in a visceral way, right? Like it's showing us kind of some of the the visually worst offenses, but like it's more insidious, like you just said. It's not just here are these heinous crimes. We need them to stop. 
and may- maybe there's a solution to those type of specific crimes. But when you look at the history, and again, like I'm, I'll, I'll link it in the the notes. But I'm looking at just the FBI's hate crime statistics over time. Like they're going up, not down. <laughs> like hate crimes in the U.S. kind of regardless of against what group are just sort of going up. And so there, there's like more things going on, right? And it kind of feels impossible to imagine what it looks like to not have policies that discriminate against one group and not another, right? Or, or policies that allow discrimination against one group. But I guess I, like, I sort of wonder, like, how can we acknowledge the harm, one, point out the just really important depths that some of this goes to, like you were talking about um, the with the deportation, like there's stuff happening that, that we're not seeing on the news, right? That it's not just the worst cases. And also sort of ask, like, how could we even begin to change anything in like a small or large way? And I think, I mean, I think that the answer might be like, we just don't know. And it's just really important to understand how insidious this is. Because when you look at the data of, you know, so far what they know about whether it is actual crime or hate incidences, um, as they're kind of described against Asian Americans over the last year, you know, they've gone, they've gone up dramatically, but like you said, they were also always there, right? So how do you kind of take that in and say there is, or there isn't anything we can do about it? You know, I, I think that's just sort of an open question of like, how do we, go forward knowing that that this is so insidious? The tracking of hate crimes uh, is really interesting. As you mentioned, like what does a hate crime or hate incident even mean, right? How is it defined by the agencies and entities tracking it? And when we look at statistics, a lot of times, um, and this has been changing more recently, but Asian Americans were just like missing from statistics and in, in, in general, right? Like even with like well-meaning foundations, you know, uh, let alone, you know, anything else. Uh, and like there wasn't a dedicated tool to track hate crimes against Asian Americans until like 2017. A lot of reasons for that. I think part of it, again, because of this assumption that we are this quote unquote model minority, um, but also because like we were, we weren't talking about it, right? Like, you know, Asian Americans weren't reporting. It's under, it's underreported because of mistrust of law enforcement and communities um, because of the shame associated with it. Right. And of course, with like language barriers and uh, just kind of a quick side note about numbers and data on hate crimes presented by law enforcement agencies. I I feel like I'm always a little bit suspect um, because they come from institutions that already, unfortunately, have biases that, that are already baked into them, right? In addition to, of course, the vast underreporting of hate crimes for various reasons. But yes, objectively, right, I feel like hate crimes and especially the more kind of blatant, again, and, and visual visceral ones are up tremendously. And to your point about with all of that's happening, right, that we see on the news every day, 
how it's hard to know um, how to like how to kind of even grasp what's going on beyond that because we're so pummeled with news of bad things happening every day. Like, how do we even begin to get information? Like, that can be a daunting challenge. But I think something as simple as getting involved in a local community organization, whether it's like by getting on a newsletter or volunteering or giving, um, just taking that one step into the community through community-based organizations it really opens the door to a lot of different types of information that we get. And I know that we've talked in the past about expanding our sources of news to those outside of of where we sit politically, but I think also expanding kind of broader and deeper um, into communities that we care about is also one way of tapping into stories that are being reported that we're just not hearing about on a national level. And, and I think really in order to move forward in thinking about stopping Asian hate, stopping immigrant hate, I think that policies that we need to pay attention to and that we need to really support are those that provide a true social safety net, um, something as basic as a living wage, right? And policies that increase access to health, um, including mental health, right? Like those things really matter because those are the root causes um, of hate crimes. And we all need to be collectively just better educated about our histories, better educated and informed about how our histories and how things got to be where they are so that we can actively, proactively prevent cycles of harm from happening over and over again. I feel like that's a great place to end, just thinking about the institutions and the structures we have that aren't working, that are in fact specifically working against the Asian American community. And we've seen maybe not even the worst of it, but the the most visually extreme of it this year. And that is really an opportunity to better understand how deep and broad this is and how there are there are institutional fixes and you know we can talk about this at another time the institutional fixes are things that will make things better for all of us <laughs> like that's um and i feel like that's that's kind of always what i what i come back to is that it's rare that we're talking about a policy that fixes one thing for one group of people you're really talking about better systematic support that's better for all of us. And so I think that, yeah, I, I, thanks for just sharing kind of some of the the details about your experience and your work. I think it's been super educational for me and, and hopefully our listeners to just sort of better understand, um, you know, even a bit of some of the particular experiences of, of Asian Americans in the U.S. and some of the systems we have that kind of continue to allow um, the harm to continue. And it just gives us a lot to think about, like, what can we do to sort of work to change those systems? Thank you, Sarah, for creating this space to talk to you about something that I care so passionately about. Thanks for joining us on Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Come on over to our website at songandsarah.com and our Instagram at FING underscore ethical 
for some suggestions for organizations you can follow and support.